invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 13. We continue our hiatus from the book of Habakkuk to take up another matter of moment in the life of our congregation. Last week we considered the matter of prayer with posture and more particularly the posture of kneeling, particularly in corporate worship. It was a matter that came to us from the session room as is this one, prayer with fasting. You all know that uh, for some time we as a congregation have been considering and saving up for a building project. Uh, As the Lord continues to bless us with numerical growth, and should He uh, continue to do so, it is becoming clearer that worshiping together is uh, going to be a challenge and require more space. Already we're feeling our limitations in uh, the fellowship hall and in our Sunday school And so we're faced with some significant decisions and questions before us. We need direction. We need wisdom. And if we're going to proceed forward, we're going to need the Lord's provision. Now, looking to the Bible, we find that when God's people are serious about asking God's help, they, of course, pray for it. But oftentimes their prayer is not alone. It is accompanied by fasting. In fact, from the uh, frequency with which fasting is mentioned in the scripture, we might easily deduce that this was in fact a regular practice of the church. Well, after the worship service today, during the announcements, we're going to hear that the session is asking the congregation to join them in three fasts over the next three months to ask for the Lord's guidance and blessing and our plans to build in his good timing. And so we as a congregation will join with our spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith who for millennia have sought God's guidance in just this way and as a result have enjoyed his rich blessing. So to the scripture we go to Acts chapter 13, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, speak to us, we pray. And as more and more we seek to Um, incorporate your word and its principles in our lives, in our worship, and in our church. We pray that you will be pleased to bless, not because, Father, we have merited it, far from it, for at our best we are unworthy servants, but because you yourself have promised to bless when your people do these things, and you have shown us in manifold ways in your scripture. And so we pray, our Father, that you will now teach us from your word and give us ears to hear We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 13, and beginning at verse 1, this is before the first missionary journey, as we call it, of Paul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Fasting. It sounds downright old-fashioned, doesn't it? Positively medieval. Like something you would hear about as you walk down a dimly lit stone-lined hallway of a monastery as the folds of your 
burlap type garment rub your ankles raw to the sound of Gregorian chant. Conjures up in our minds superstitious Christians beating themselves with whips in order to merit the blessings of God, fasting and flagellating. Indeed, fasting sounds to our ears most un-American. With our constant concentration on sumptuous foods and gourmet restaurants, Richard Foster writes that in a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of step with the times. We're very skilled at feasting, aren't we? But we're not so accustomed to fasting, slow to fast and fast to feast. One pastor I heard at our General Assembly uh, a few years ago, our denomination's assembly, urged us uh, to fast with prayer for the unborn, but had to confess that the first time he was invited to a gathering to pray and fast, he brought along a sack lunch. But fasting with prayer is not simply a medieval practice for cloistered monks. Nor is it a practice whose value expired when superstitious Christians turned it into a means of currying God's favor for salvation. If that were the case, we'd have very few religious practices left to us indeed who trust in God and his grace and mercy alone for our salvation apart from works. Fasting is, brothers and sisters, simply a spiritual discipline. In fact, if you will consult the scripture on this point, you'll find that it's not only biblical, but it is everywhere an important ingredient for growing and maturing in the spiritual walk and life with God. A quick scan of scripture shows that fasting was the practice of individuals. It was the practice of entire nations. It was of groups of people and of the church. Moses, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, Moses, David, Cornelius, Barnabas, just to mention a few, all fasted, as did, of course, the one who is not only our Savior, but our chief example, Jesus Christ himself. Israel and Judah fasted, as did, you remember, the wicked but repentant Nineveh. Saul's valiant men, David and his men, the Jews in Susa, the people and the priests, the newly established churches in Acts, even married couples in Corinth, all fasted. Now, what does the scripture mean, though, when it says fasting? Well, simply this, it means denying oneself, the very thing, by the way, that Jesus called us to do and says is essential to any genuinely Christian life, denying oneself something pleasurable, something desirable, or even something necessary for a period of time in order to serve a greater purpose, usually prayer. We think of the most common item from which Christians fast. It is, of course, from food. But biblical fasting is not limited only to food, nor does it necessitate the abstinence from all food. You remember Daniel, for instance, in the 10th chapter, we read of a three-week fast in which Daniel abstained not from all foods, but from choice food, 
from meat and from wine. I have a friend who abstains for the Lenten season from iced tea. That doesn't seem like a very big deal to you, but it is to him. Iced tea is his choice food. On the other hand, we can remember Ezra, that godly leader who fasted not only from food, but even from water. Paul implies in his first letter to the Corinthians that there is also a type of fasting very carefully and mutually circumscribed between a husband and a wife from sexual intimacy for the sake of prayer. According to that, uh, to the scripture, that kind of fast must be one in which the husband and the wife are in complete agreement, should be a clearly defined fast, and then finish by coming back together again, lest Satan tempt uh, one or the other into sin. Typically in the Bible, total fasts are short, while partial fasts are longer. But whatever kind of fast we engage in, whether total or partial, whether from food or some other type of abstinence, a fast must be a voluntary act of self-denial, or even we might say self-affliction. That, by the way, is what the scripture calls fasting in a number of places, self-affliction or afflicting ourselves before God. There is... Of course, a religious purpose behind all of this. We're not talking about fasting to lose weight or to lower our cholesterol, to fast for those reasons and then to act as though we're fasting for religious reasons is hypocrisy. And the scripture has plenty to say, as you know, about false fasting as well, the kind of fasting that God will not honor. In fact, the kind of fasting that he hates. So we'll do well, actually, because of that, to consider briefly a few negatives first when it comes to fasting. First, we must remember in fasting that there is no intrinsic value in fasting in itself. Like everything else in the Christian life, motive and intention and sincerity and humility and faith are all required to make any spiritual discipline useful or pleasing to God. Remember this, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like all these other men. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I get. Remember that prayer? It was the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, face up to heaven, so full of himself, so certain that he was, uh, because of the outward things, the fasting and the tithing, that, that he was building up favor with God, and God was therefore pleased with him. But his words no sooner left his mouth than they hit the floor, and there they stayed. Why? Because without faith, it is nothing. In fact, it's worse, isn't it? It's worse than nothing. All the works, all the acts, all the religious routine is nothing apart from faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the scripture says. Martin Luther recovered that truth and it transformed his pre-conversion fasts, some as long as three days without a bite 
of food. Isaiah transformed Luther's fasts from attempts to merit favor with God to acts of love and devotion to God, who had already justified him apart from works. Second, you cannot substitute fasting for other acts of righteousness. You cannot substitute fasting for other acts of righteousness. We saw this in Amos several years ago, that God will not receive an act of worship when it is given as a substitute for obedience somewhere else in that person's life or in a congregation's life. Isaiah 2 addressed this point to disobedient Israel's chagrin. Remember, he warned the people, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. What is true for worship, you see, is also true for fasting. In order for it to receive its desired effect, it must rise out of a life that is otherwise marked by faithfulness, by obedience, and by repentance from and hatred for sin. Don't you dare treat your wife cruelly, ignore your children, steal from your employer, and then come fasting to God. He won't have it. In fact, he hates it. It must be both. It must be a life of humble, repentant, striving after obedience with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and the religious acts of worship, fasting, and prayer. The early Christians understood this well and so wrote things like these lines from an early Christian work. Quote, fasting is very good, provided that the commandments of the Lord be observed. Observe as follows the fasting you intend to keep. First of all, refrain from speaking and hearing what is wrong. And cleanse thy heart from all pollutions, from all revengeful feelings, and from all covetousness. And reckon up what thy meal on this day would have cost thee. And give the amount to some widow or orphan or to the poor. Third, a true fast must not be simply and only an outward act. It must be a work of the heart. Rend your hearts, said Joel, you remember in chapter 2. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, Joel was not saying that it is unimportant to worship the Lord and to demonstrate your worship and prayer in outward, bodily, visible ways. Of course not. But he was decrying the outward appearances that do not involve the heart, that do not engage the heart. You can fast all day long. You can tear up a whole closet full of garments, for that matter. But if it is only an outward show without the heart, then it is worthless. No, it is worse than worthless. Return to me with all your heart, says the Lord, with all your heart, with fasting with weeping and with mourning. 
don't leave off the fasting. He says, only make sure that behind the fasting I find your heart engaged. Not just your stomach. So there's no intrinsic value in fasting itself. Fasting is no substitute for true righteousness. And fasting must not be only an outward act, but inward as well. Those are some negatives, but we hasten on to some positives as well. What purposes fasting serves that it should be a part of our spiritual lives today? First, we should fast as an expression of humility and dependence upon God. Humility and dependence upon God. It was their humble dependence upon God to guide them as expressed through the fasting and praying that brought about the setting apart of Paul and Barnabas to this work of proclaiming the good news as missionaries. And then their dependence upon God for his blessing upon their work that is demonstrated so clearly in those days of fasting and prayer in Antioch. Think back, you remember Ezra. Ezra proclaimed a fast during his day, long before, that we might, he said, humble ourselves before the Lord. The writers of the Psalms humble themselves before the Lord with fasting as well. And of course it should be so. I mean, what, what is more central to the life of any genuine Christian than humility before God? It is, quite frankly, the jewel that is missing from so much of modern Christianity, especially in our place and in our day. Genuine humility before God. We have our money. We have our five-year plans. We have our technology. We have a book or two or ten on helping yourself to improve your marriage or improve your business or grow your church. But fasting reminds us that we are dependent upon God for everything, absolutely everything that we have and are. John Calvin, with his typical pastoral insight, made this observation in his Immortal Institutes. Whenever a controversy over religion arises, which ought to be settled by either a synod or, or an ecclesiastical court, whenever there is a question about choosing a minister, whenever finally any difficult matter of great importance is to be discussed, or again, when there appear the judgments of the Lord's anger as pestilence, war, and famine, this is a holy ordinance and one salutary for all ages that pastors urge the people to public fasting and extraordinary prayers. Second, fasting can also be a means of breaking the sinful will and at the same time of strengthening the holy will and promoting spiritual discipline. Now that does not necessarily appear to be the, the point, not the main point anyway, of the fast here in Acts, but it surely has that effect, fasting does, in other circumstances in Scripture. By fasting, the one who fasts forces his body to say no, for instance, to certain things, to say no to sin. 
but to control his body as well, to say no even to lawful things when his body cries out yes. Fasting helps us to learn to control ourselves and to take mastery over our body rather than being mastered by our flesh. When I ran cross-country races as a youth in high school, I found that the more time I spent training uh, and forcing my body to do what it definitely did not want to do, the more control I gained over my body. And by the time the season was over, I was taking mastery over my body. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 9. He writes, Do you not know that in a race the, ra the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul did not literally beat his body like some say. What he did was to deprive his body of what it craved. He said no to what his body demanded of him. No doubt he did this especially by fasting, by, by denying his hungry body food for certain periods of time. And in this way, you see, he mastered. He learned how to master his body until he could say no to it whenever he wanted. And by saying no to perfectly permissible desires... He also gained the ability to say no to sinful desires as well. The saints through history have shared the same experience. Thomas Shepard in his journal writes, I kept a private fast for the conquest of my pride. So we too will gain greater conquest over our own sin through this practice of fasting with prayer. Third and finally, fasting will serve to intensify our petitionary prayers. That is our prayers in which we are asking God or, ask, or petitioning him for something. This seems plainly to be the case here in Antioch. For one thing, when you empty your stomach, your mind is more free to focus on your prayers. It sharpens them. It clears away the distraction and helps you to fix your eyes more immediately on the Lord and on the matter about which you are praying. Of course, they could have eaten a supper in Antioch. They could have called a, a, a great fellowship meal and feasted together and then prayed. But their prayer was intensified. They're asking was transformed into imploring because they had prepared through fasting. John Calvin again suggests that this is the chief purpose of fasting, to render us more eager and unencumbered for prayer, 
Surely we experience this. With a full stomach, our mind is not so lifted up to God that it can be drawn to prayer with a serious and ardent affection and persevere in it. Still, we read a passage like this one before us this morning, and we're left to wonder, what, what does fasting really accomplish in the relationship between us and God? I mean, we know that a fasting affects us, but what does it accomplish from God's perspective? Well, I'm not sure that we can confidently say with all of the great studies on fasting that have been written over these hundreds, even thousands of years, I don't think we can say that we've really closed our finger all the way, fingers all the way around this, the key to this doctrine and this practice. We can imagine perhaps it has the same effect as importunate prayer of going to the Lord over and over and over and over again until finally he is pleased to give over like the importunate widow who goes time and time again until she receives her answer. But this much we do know. Brothers and sisters, God has been pleased to teach and from time to time to require this of his people. Whenever it has been done and been done from the heart, it has had the glorious effect of nurturing and strengthening the saints for holy lives and for effectual prayers. It has served as a great means for teaching us the terrible seriousness of being a Christian, of prayer as the great tool for advancing the kingdom of God, and of sacrificial living as the norm, not the exception, for the genuine disciple of Christ. And surely, surely, if this is a matter of such importance to the mind of our Savior, who taught his disciples during his earthly ministry not about if they should fast, but when they are fasting. And if the great leaders of his church, from the prophets to the great apostle, found this absolutely necessary to accomplish their kingdom goals in prayer, then how much more important must it not be for us to fast as well? So, Christians, with the word of God in your hands, with a spirit-illumined conscience to instruct and guide you, you go, and we will too, and put, into this, uh, put this discipline into practice too, and see how the Lord is pleased, so pleased to answer wonderfully, even remarkably, when his children deny themselves take up their cross and follow him. Amen.